Good morning. Good to be back with you. I also want to welcome those who I hope and trust are joining us, streaming this morning. At the beginning of this series, making our way through different portions of the book of Proverbs, I extended an invitation, an offer. I said, if any of you are reading along and you have a question about what you're reading, if in the course of delivering these messages, something I say sparks a question, feel free to send me an email, drop me a note, stop by, let's talk about it, give me a call, whatever. I will try to answer those questions personally and or might even work the answers into subsequent messages. Well, nobody has written to me one thing this whole time. And uh, I'm going to chalk that up to being such a clear communicator. I'm sure that that's exactly what's going on, right? I'm, yeah. Anyway, nobody seems to have a question, so I took the liberty this morning to make one up. Dear Pastor Scott, <clears throat> first let me say that your shirt and tie combinations are very spiffy. Your wife is very fortunate to have a husband with such fashion sense. Thank you. That's a joke. <clears throat> I am 56 years old. I have no fashion sense. Every Saturday night, my faithful wife lays out my garanimals, and she does her best to make me look presentable on a Sunday morning, and that has been her quest for about 35 years, and I think... She does okay. Okay, to my question. Sometimes I have difficulty with reading the Proverbs because, and I'm almost ashamed to say this, but sometimes they seem to contradict themselves, and at other times I'm not convinced they are completely true. Can you help me? Perplex. Well, maybe you can relate to that. You've been reading through the book of Proverbs, and you certainly have come across verses that seem to conflict with other verses, and sometimes you might even have spotted what appear to be some outright contradictions. At other times, you may be reading a passage of Scripture in the Proverbs. It makes a statement. It makes a declaration. But when you hold that up against your own personal experience, it really doesn't ring What's going on? Well, there's help for perplexed, and there's help for you today, if that happens to be you. And it lies in understanding three things. What a proverb is, what a proverb is not, and how to apply the proverb. That's a, that's a structure of the message this morning, what a proverb is, what a proverb is not, and how to apply the proverb. Father, we come to this point in our worship where we humbly sit under your word. It is your voice we have gathered here to listen to. It is your truth that we yearn for, that we long for, that we lack, and that we need. So speak to us clearly, plainly, winsomely. Woo us to you, Father as we consider your words to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is a proverb? What a proverb is? Consider these four similar 
definitions. A proverb is a maxim of wisdom. A proverb is a short sentence, often repeated, expressing a well-known truth or common fact, ascertained by experience or observation. A proverb is a short saying that expresses a general truth for practical, godly living. Tremper Longman III writes, a proverb expresses an insight, observation, or advice that has been popularly accepted as a general truth. All of those slightly different, but accurate descriptions of a proverb, of what a proverb is. A short maxim of wisdom expressing a general truth. Now, and more to the point, troubling perplexed, maybe troubling you today, what a proverb is not. And here's something you might not have known going into this study, something you maybe haven't thought about when it comes to Proverbs, but a proverb is not a formula. A proverb is not a, a if this, then always that sort of proposition. Proverbs are not to be read as guarantees. Consider this modern proverb. An apple a day, well, what does an apple a day do? Keeps the doctor away. Okay, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's a way of saying that good eating habits help avoid health problems, right? But we all know people who have eaten well, who have been good stewards of their bodies, have taken care of themselves probably better than most of us, and yet they have contracted a disease. So in general, good eating habits promote good health, but they certainly do not guarantee it. You see, proverbs are truths, but they are general truths, and they are not always universally true. Now, don't let that throw you when it comes to understanding Scripture. Consider Proverbs 10, verse 1. And by the way, we're going to be tossing out a lot of references this morning, so you can either try to keep up or just jot down lots of notes. Proverbs 10, 1. And we could do this little exercise here with all sorts of the Proverbs. Proverbs 10.1 teaches, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. This would have been a verse that my mother would have underlined in my, in my living Bible. Do you, you have parents who did that, huh? Until it comes to the one about the nagging woman, and all of a sudden, no lines. Yeah. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. All right. Of course, a son who displays wisdom makes a dad happy. Right? And a son given to folly, yeah, that would break a mother's heart. But what if the father himself is not wise? What if the father himself doesn't value wisdom? What if the father is a drunkard? What if he's an addict? What if he's a criminal? What if the mother is one of those things? Or what if the mother is so caught up in her own drama, she doesn't even have any time to pay attention to her kids. She doesn't know where they are. She doesn't know what they're doing. She actually doesn't really care very much because life is all about her. You see, there are times when a wise son doesn't make a father glad and a foolish son doesn't make a mother sad. This proverb portrays a general principle. It is true under certain circumstances, one might even say most circumstances, namely this, that when parents value wisdom, they are grateful 
if their children value it also. And they are sorrowful if their children don't. So Proverbs 10.1 is not absolutely true all the time. It's just usually true. And keep in mind, this is a proverb of Solomon. And Solomon is writing to his son or sons. And what does he want his son or sons to know? I want you to know how to make dad happy and how to make sure to make, not to make mom sad. Right? Okay, son. Don't, don't do this to your mother. Be wise. Consider Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This also seems like a very straightforward, easy to accept idea. One person has put it this way. A righteous life disarms opposition. Uh, Albert Barnes, commentator Albert Barnes says, goodness has the power to charm and win even enemies to itself. And this makes sense. If a person is living a godly life, if a person chooses to live in a way that pleases the Lord, in other words, that person is a loving person, a kind person, that person serves others, that person's full of mercy, full of grace, that person easily forgives others, it's hard to understand why, when, if, or how that person would ever be counted as somebody's enemy. Even if it was a neighbor who didn't share a, the same faith perspective, if that person is living in ways that please the Lord, is kind, is loving, is serving, forgiving, then that person's likely to wi be winning people as friends and not enemies. So this is a basic principle, that if a person lives in the ways that please the Lord, he can make even his enemies be at peace with him. But what about the Apostle Paul? Would we say that he lived in ways that pleased the Lord? Since Jesus got his attention, he gave his life to Christ, and then he spent his whole life trying to please Jesus and trying to advance the kingdom of God, right? And, and do what was best and right. And along the way and through his many journeys, he made a lot of friends, didn't he? But at the same time, guess what else he made? Lots of enemies. Lots of people who wouldn't listen to him. Lots of people who were threatened by what he had to say. Lots of people who would not accept the gospel message. And we know how it ended for the Apostle Paul. Did he make all his enemies to be at peace with him? He ended up being beheaded. He ended up being executed, killed for his faith. And in fact, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Romans and said, as much as it depends on you... Be at peace with all men, understanding that you can do everything right. You can live in the ways that please the Lord and do everything right. And sometimes some people still will decide that they're going to be your enemy. So again, Proverbs 16, 7 is generally true. But it is not specifically true in all circumstances. Tremper, Tremper Longman, again, in his book, How to Read Proverbs, writes this. He says, to read a proverb, as if it were always true in every circumstance, is to commit a serious error. We call it the error of genre misidentification. So I'm not going to go into the different types of genres in the Bible, but we understand there are many different types, right, in the Scripture. You've got historical narrative. You've got history, which is fact. You've got poetry, which is a lot of imagery. There's, there's gospel. 
there's apocalyptic literature, which is a whole other animal that in Daniel and Revelation that requires a whole different way of reading. So basically what he's saying is that if, if we read Proverbs as if they were always true, we're not understanding the genre of a proverb. The proverbs form, no matter the cultural background, presupposes the right circumstances for its proper application. Now, we're not used to kind of hearing stuff like this. We're used to understanding that we open the word, and it is what it is, and it says what it says. But that's not what's going on here. And yet, you know this better than you think you do. So I want to share with you two relatively modern parables, things I think we would be familiar with, little pithy sayings, right? Uh, Proverbs. I, I don't know why I said, did I say parables? Did anybody notice? Yeah, see, I did two series, and they both begin with P, and I get them confused all the time. And then after, I was like, I didn't mean to say that. Proverbs, two proverbs, basically modern proverbs that you're familiar with. One would be, look before you leave. Well, what does that mean? That, that means... Pay attention to what's going on. Don't jump in there too fast, because if you're not assessing and evaluating what's in front of you and you get ahead of yourself, you can jump into something. It could be bad for you. It could be painful. So look before you leap. Okay. Now here's another one. He who hesitates is lost. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that if there's not a sense of urgency on your part, if you don't move quickly, if you don't take advantage very fast of an opportunity that's in front of you, you might miss it altogether. So which is it? Is it look before you leap, or is it he who hesitates is lost? The answer is yes. Or the answer is it depends, and that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. What do you mean it depends? Well, it actually depends on the circumstance, on the situation, on the timing. Sometimes you are wise to linger and wait and really assess the situation, and sometimes you do have to make hay while the sun shines. You do have to strike while the iron is hot. We've got all these ways of saying, the same thing, right? And it depends on the situation what would be the right course of action. So again, Proverbs, all Proverbs are not formulas. They are usually or ordinarily true. They speak about outcomes that are likely but not guaranteed. They aren't promises. They aren't absolutes. Just why sayings to be applied in the right circumstance at the right time. And the easiest way for us to see that from our text this morning it's to take another look at Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Verse 4 says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. God in his providence, in, in his sovereignty, put these two verses back to back in his word, to drive people who want to have black and white thinking completely bananas, but also to help us understand this is what a proverb is. Sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. So let's start with the obvious here in the text. Verse 4 says we should not answer a fool according to his folly. Verse 5 says we should answer a fool according to his folly. And if we're reading these parables as absolutes, if we, in this case as absolute commands, we have a problem. We have a contradiction. Because both Proverbs offer good advice, but it's opposite advice. And you cannot reconcile these two commands. Does that mean that one is true and the other is not? This was actually part of the argument in the early days of establishing the canon to decide whether or not Proverbs was in fact inspired. 
These contradictions cause people to go, wait a minute, this can't be the word of God if it tells you to do this and then, then it goes and tells you to do the opposite. Because we cannot practically follow both of these Proverbs, 26, 4, and 5 at the same time, can we? Which one do we follow then? How do we apply them to ourselves or to others? Both of them offer reasonable but mutually exclusive biblical courses of action. And here is the truth. You must discern each situation to know how to apply the proverb correctly. You must discern that. You must read the room. You must be aware of your own motivations. You must weigh the risks and the rewards. In some situations, it's going to be important to refrain from answering a fool according to his folly. Because in that conversation, you will almost oh, certainly degrade yourself to the point where you yourself are saying foolish things and acting like a fool. That's probably never happened to any of you, but it surely has happened to me. And I want to suggest a couple of ways you can know maybe it has happened to you. One is if you're married, <laughs> and the other is if you've raised teens. And that is not to say, I, I have, this is, I'm not even going to get this right, and it's going to be on YouTube. Our I'm not saying that our spouses are always fools, but I am saying that in a marriage relationship, it's quite possible for any one of us at either time to be foolish. Will you agree with that? I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying at some point, somebody's going to be a knucklehead. And that person is going to say or do something that is foolish. And if you enter into a conversation around that foolish thing, and there's emotion attached to it, there's passion there, there's irritation, there's anger or hurt or frustration or whatever it is, you very well will be responding to foolishness with being foolish. Have you had that time in your marriage relationship where after an argument for a time, you look at each other and you say, what are we talking about? What? How did we get here? This doesn't make any sense. Okay, that's the foolish conversation that happens when we, when we engage a fool according to his folly. Better to just let that one slide. Come back to it later when you're in a different frame of mind. Sometimes you've raised teenagers. Teenagers are awesome. Teenagers are, are, are great to have around. And yet there are times when a teenager, for whatever reason, is going to say something completely off the wall. At least off the wall according to you, your value system, what you think is right and good. And you're going to look at that teen and you're going to say, where on earth did that come from? Have you lost your mind? That is the stupidest thing. Okay, at that point, you're now fool. You have engaged at that level. And then if you get really exasperated and it, and it goes sideways quick, you end up saying and doing things that make you sound like a maniac. In fact, how many of you have been grounded for life? It's not even a reasonable thing, but it happens because we get foolish. So there are times when it's absolutely the right thing to refrain from answering a fool according to his folly. Better to say something like, that's interesting, or maybe better to say nothing at all. But then there are other times when we have to speak up because 
somebody is speaking ridiculous ideas or they're choosing a course of action that we know is wrong, harmful, going to lead to a bad place, and they're overconfident, which is part of the makeup of the fool. We talked about that early on in, our, um, in the series here in Proverbs. Right? And we know that if something doesn't happen, if an intervention isn't made, if somebody isn't, as I like to say, dropping a uh, pebble into their pool of static thought and creating a few waves, something for them to think about, they're liable to make a shipwreck of something. So I've got to step in there and I've got to say something. So you see, sometimes it is important that we not answer a fool according to his folly. Sometimes it's important that we do. And it's never going to be always the right thing to do to shut up any more than it's always going to be the right thing to do to speak up. You have to know which proverb applies when, in which circumstance, at which time. And that leads us to an important element in the uh, application of proverbs, the use of proverbs for, for others and certainly for ourselves. We need wisdom to know how to properly apply a proverb. You need wisdom to do this right. The serenity prayer uh, attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. We need wisdom to properly apply the Proverbs. And wisdom is more than information, isn't it? Wisdom is more than knowledge. Wisdom is more than just knowing stuff. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, many men know a great deal and are the greater fools for it. He says, there's no fool so great as a knowing fool. <laughs> Think about that because you probably come across once in a while a know-it-all. They're unteachable and, 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 and they know everything and yet in some ways they are foolish. There is no fool so great as a knowing fool. So wisdom is more than information. Wisdom is more than knowing something. In fact, wisdom is a skill. As it is grounded in the fear of God, and if you want a, an easy way to understand wisdom, understand it this way. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective and act accordingly. That's what wisdom is. Seeing life from God's perspective and then acting accordingly. That's why we need wisdom to generally to uh, apply Proverbs properly to us and to others. Uh, for instance, when is it right to rebuke a person? Because as we read through the scripture, we see that clearly rebuking others is part of what it means to live in community. It's part of what it means to grow together. There is going to be a, a time when we are going to have to offer uh, a rebuke. And it's not going to be just once in a lifetime either. It's, it's fairly regular when we're working and loving on sinful human beings. We all need this kind of counsel. So when is it right to do that? When is it right to do that? Because we're supposed to do that, right? Proverbs 27.5, open rebuke is better than secret love. Ecclesiastes 7.5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Hebrews 3, we are to exhort one another daily, and that exhortation has a connotation both of encouragement but also warning or caution. So we are supposed to be doing this with some regularity. And yet, I bet you have found out, if you've tried this, that not all rebukes, no matter 
how warranted they might be, and no matter how well-intentioned they might be, not all rebukes are received equally. Has that been your experience? Proverbs 9, 7 cautions us. It says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. That there's a risk involved with rebuking somebody. You are likely to invite abuse. You might even invite physical injury. Now, has that ever been more true, do you think, than it is right now in this country right here? Not for us it hasn't. Because if you want to take a stand on an issue that isn't popular, or you want to uh, put forth an idea or a premise that is not culturally acceptable, and you do that, what's going to happen to you today? Is somebody just going to say, oh, well, I guess we just disagree? That's not likely to happen. You're more likely to be labeled. You're more likely to be told how you feel. You are more likely to be called out on social media or lumped in with a particular group of people, even though you haven't had a chance to really articulate your position. You may be bullied. You may be shamed. And you may even be canceled. That's what's happening, right? So Proverbs is right. If you correct a scoffer, you're going to get some abuse. And so Proverbs 9, 8 says, don't reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. It's like, oh, wow, at least now I know what to do. I don't have to do that. But then there's the second half of this verse. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. So wait a minute. Don't reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. All right, I, uh, yeah. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. How do I follow this proverb? In light of the potential outcomes, do I reprove? Do I not reprove? Do you rebuke? Do you not rebuke? A humble calculation has to be made. In order for me to know the path to take when I come to Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, I have to know what sort of fool is in front of me. And I don't mean that in a, in a critical, negative sense. I mean, I have to discern. Is this somebody who's tone deaf? Is this somebody who has no interest in learning? Or is this somebody who has a chance of receiving what I have to say? If I'm going to follow Proverbs 9, 8, then I have to discern in the moment, am I dealing with a scornful, angry person who's going to hate me if I try to correct her? Or am I dealing with a wise person who's eagerly interested in doing the right thing and making the right choices. However I answer those calculations will determine then how I apply the proverb. And there's no hard and fast rule. And that's bothersome to, to people who are looking for a hard and fast rule. Except I can say this. I think one hard and fast rule would be that we, whatever we do, we do it in a loving way. That's always true in the scripture. We are called to love. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are called to love others as, as we have been loved in Christ Jesus. And so however we approach people, we have to be choosing the most loving approach. I say that because it's important. Some people, I've heard it, and I, I've, I've done it too, so I can't just project this onto anybody. But at some point, sometimes you just say, well, I don't care what so-and-so thinks. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And I'm thinking, you may need that later. Don't give it away. You know, um, one might question whether you have any to spare. But anyway, um, 
When I do that, when I think that way, when I act that way, that becomes about me, doesn't it? It's my need. And I'm not being thoughtful or considerate of the, the effect of my words on others. I'm, I, I, I'm doing something to them, but I'm not being considerate of them. And that falls short of how we're supposed to speak to one another, which we read about in the last chapter, or Ephesians 4, actually, right? Where we are told, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Save that which is good for the building up of one another, that it might give grace to those who hear. So the effect of our words and the application of scriptural wisdom is to be building people up. It's to demonstrate love. So that's, again, in Ephesians, speak the truth in love. And it is to give grace. That's, that's the purpose of it. It isn't to be mean, it isn't to be critical, it isn't to be catty, it isn't to be superior, it isn't to be spiritual, it's to be kind, it is to be loving. So that is, that is something to keep in mind, right? A gentle tongue, Proverbs 15.4 says, a gentle, which is a word that means comforting, healing, wholesome. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So we can use our words for good or for bad, we can use our words to help, or we can use our words to hurt. And we need wisdom to know how to speak, particularly when we're trying to apply Scripture in, a, in an effective way. Because there is a danger, um, first, that what we have to say is applying Scripture to somebody. And by, before I say that, how many of you have had the experience, I don't need you to raise your hand, but I want you to think about it, of somebody maybe quoting a Bible verse to you at the wrong, most wrong possible moment. They thought they, thought they were going to give you some sort of nugget of wisdom and it, was, it really was a painful thing or a hard thing to hear because it was misapplied. It was the wrong thing. And then, of course, I, we'd have to confess probably, at least I would, especially in my role, I'm sure there have been times when I have offered scripture that wasn't, wasn't helpful. And so think about, just think about that when you think about the application of Proverbs. Because if we're not sensitive to this, that we need wisdom to know what to say and when to say it, the timing and delivery and all of those things, then there's a chance that we're going to use the Word of God more as a weapon than a means of help. And there's a chance that our efforts will either be meaningless or hurtful. And neither of those is a particularly good use of time, do you think? To do something that's meaningless or to do something that hurts somebody else. So think back to the apple a day keeps the doctor away proverb. It would be entirely appropriate to quote this little ditty to somebody who's trying to lower their cholesterol. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Yeah, that's fine. It would be completely egregious to quote this proverb to somebody who's suffering with cancer. Would you intend to say to somebody who's sick, you wouldn't have this dreadful disease if you'd just eaten some more apples? Of course you wouldn't, because it, that doesn't fit there. That's the... That would be the wrong application. You see what I'm talking about? And so we read it earlier, 26.7, Proverbs 26.7. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. A proverb in the mouth of fools, which, and that's what we are when we're not giving good, careful, prayerful thought to how we apply the scripture. A proverb in the mouth of fools is kind of like a bum leg. It's about as useful as a bum leg. For Proverbs 26, 9, like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. And this can be uh, interpreted a couple of ways. Uh, one is that an intoxicated person doesn't feel anything. And so a proverb improperly applied 
has the same effect as a thorn in the hand of an intoxicated person, which is no effect. It doesn't do anything. You don't feel anything. Nothing changes. Or another rendering might be that, a, that when a drunkard handles thorns, because some translations will say thorn bush. That's a bit of a different image, right? Now we have a drunk with a thorn bush. That's dangerous for him, but anybody else that happens to get in the way. And, and so another rendering is that when a drunkard handles thorns, they're painful and they're dangerous to himself and to others. So a parable in the mouth of such a fool can be misapplied and distorted. It can do harm. Again, we just need wisdom on our end to know how to apply the word of God in such a way that it will have its best effect. Job experienced um, a lot. You may be familiar with the character Job in the Bible. And... He experienced a lot of loss and a lot of suffering. And in Job, we, we kind of find an example of what I'm talking about on the negative, of the misapplication of Scripture. Because he's these friends who come to his help, and he calls them lousy comforters, and that, that was generous. It's like saying, guys, you're supposed to be my friends, but you're really bad at this. Because they weren't giving him good, biblical, godly, helpful counsel, were they? No, they were actually misapplying Proverbs 11.8. Proverbs 11.8 says the righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. And they wrongly believe, as do a lot of people to this day. And then they held Job to, to account for this idea that, hey, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Job, so if you're having a bad time, you must have been really bad. You must have done something horribly wrong. And that wasn't the case at all, was it? Job was being tested by Satan. And God allowed it. And so he said to his friends, Job 13, 12, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. What you're giving me has no substance, has no help, has no healing. Conversely, Proverbs 15, 23 says to make an apt answer is a joy. To a man and a word in season, how good it is. To make an apt answer. And that's what we need God's wisdom for. To be the kind of people who can provide an apt answer. A word in season. Um, properly timed. Um, sensitively delivered. Appropriately aimed. The word from God. Now, listen. You as a child of God, have opportunities with, with some frequency to minister Christ, to, to give God's word to people. Think about the weight of that. Think of, and think about how beautiful that is. Let's not squander those sorts of opportunities. We can have the gentle, healing, comforting, wholesome tongue that is a tree of life. We, we don't have to get this wrong. We just have to be wise about it. And so that begs the question, and we'll end here, right? Where do we get the wisdom? We need the wisdom. Where does the wisdom come from? Proverbs 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. Isn't it funny that this book about wisdom tells us how to get it? Of course. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So wisdom comes from God, and then how do we get it? We know where it comes from. How do we get it? We get it through prayer. Asking in prayer. We're about ready to jump into James, the book of James. There's over 50 people signed up for these small groups. 
And, and, and in James chapter 1, I think it's verse 5, it says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously and without reproach. But if you don't know the answer, you can ask God, and he's going he's to abundantly answer that question for you, and he's going to give you wisdom. Right? So by asking in prayer is one way that we get God's answer. Secondly, by reading God's word. It would make sense, right, if wisdom is the mind of God, that we would find wisdom in the word of God. That, that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to man, and this is where we find wisdom. Isn't it so interesting how so many sermons come down to spiritual disciplines? Prayer and reading the word. And then, of course, thirdly, not lastly by any means, really, but thirdly and most importantly, we get the wisdom of God when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We get the wisdom of God when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, takes up residence in us, makes us a new creation. We see things like we've never seen them before. We understand what we never understood before. That's where we get wisdom. And Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom, right? In the book, Gospel of John, the Word, the Word, the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. God incarnate, the embodiment of God's wisdom is in Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote of Jesus and said, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So where do you get wisdom? You get wisdom from Jesus. You're not getting your wisdom from your fortune cookie today at China Hill. You're not getting wisdom from your self-help books. <clears throat> you're not getting great wisdom from magazines or newspaper articles as much as you're going to get it from Jesus. <clears throat> if you want to be wise, and I hope you do, if you want to act wisely, <clears throat> Your starting point is a relationship with Jesus Christ. One more thing and we're done. We begin with Jesus. We don't just end with the day that we made that commitment to him, do we? And here's something for us as Christians. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, but you want to be wise, I'm saying get to know Jesus. But if you are a Christian and you want to continue to be wise, here's something we must remember. You've got to keep listening. You've got to listen so you can follow. That's where wisdom is. It's in Jesus who will speak to us and who, and who will lead us where he wants us to be. That's the path of wisdom that you need. It's in Jesus. The way the truth and the life.